Hey, Happy New Year, listeners. This is Maureen, and I just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the Jelaine Maxwell verdict came in. She was found guilty on five of six counts, and we'll talk about it more in our next episode. And also, sorry, we had a microphone issue, but I'm sure you guys are used to it, and we resolve for 2022 to sound better. Thanks, and on with the show. (laughs) <laughs> hi this is maureen milliken and this is rebecca milliken and this is crime and stuff the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do and today we have our special guest our sister liz hi liz the other portland hello everybody in oregon Although she's not in Portland now. No, she's in my... But she is on Zoom. Right, we're on Zoom. She's bringing us one of her popular Northwest crimes. Okay, so I have three updates, and I will keep them relatively brief. (laughs) Uh You laugh, right? Okay, the first one is from our episode three. December 18th was the 10th anniversary of the disappearance. Oh my gosh. Right. 10 years. Remember that weekend? Because I was, it was when I was the editor at the paper and we had our family party, the reporter for the weekend, Doug Harlow, who's, who um, died of, of throat cancer a couple of years ago, Uh was covering it. And he was texting me and said this, and this, it was before, you know, she was still just like missing. He said, this is going to be a national story. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I think you're right. It was the 10th anniversary, and to recap, Ayla, 20 months old at the time, disappeared, quote, unquote, from the mm-hmm. Waterville home of her father, Justin DiPietro. Justin said he put her to bed in the basement bedroom he shared with his girlfriend and her infant, and in the morning, Ayla was gone. He was just getting to know Ayla. She lived most of her life with her mother, Trista Reynolds, but was living with him in his mother's house in Waterville. Well, her mother, Trista, was in rehab. Justin's mother wasn't home that night, but in the house were his sister and her toddler. So three adults, him, his sister, his girlfriend, three babies, Ayla, his girlfriend's baby, and his sister's baby. Ayla's the one who disappeared. He said he put her to bed on Friday night, and then when he got up and went to get her on Saturday morning, she was gone. A massive search, the biggest ever in Maine history. Uh-huh. Turned up nothing. Cops did find blood in the basement. The case was changed from a missing person to a homicide after a while. No one was ever charged, though suspicion has always been on Justin. Ayla was pronounced dead seven years after her disappearance, which allowed her mother to file a wrongful death suit against Justin. He was deposed on the 10th anniversary this past December 18th by video. He lives in the Midwest now. Trista's lawyer, William Childs, told the Morning Sentinel in Waterville, a forensic expert hired by him, by Childs, has done a report that's part of a massive case file, none of which has been made public. There's no date yet for the civil trial. DiPietro, who I said now lives in the Midwest, according to his lawyer, Michael Waxman of Portland, Maine, has always maintained his innocence, and Waxman said Justin still struggles with Ayla's disappearance and death. Uh, Waxman said he hasn't seen the forensic report, but expects it to provide, quote, comic entertainment, unquote, which I guess means he's he's cynical about it, I guess. 
because yeah, so. he, that's just a weird way of putting I it. I think it implies that will be a laughably unbelievable. Um, oh, yeah, okay. He's done some more stuff like he has to know more about the forensic expert, blah, blah, blah. But that's basically when that civil trial happens, I'll do more. My next update is Jelaine Maxwell, our episode 78, which as I said before, we didn't go into the whole Jeffrey Epstein Maxwell for being a sex trafficking accomplice to now dead serial sexual predator, Jeffrey Epstein, but more about, it was more about her being caught in New Hampshire. As we record this, jurors are taking a weekend break from deliberating in her trial. By our next episode, probably even before this one drops, there will be a verdict. Maxwell is charged with six federal counts, including sex trafficking of a minor, enticing a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts, transporting a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, and three related counts of conspiracy. If convicted of all three, she could get up to 70 years in prison. The trial has been about what you'd expect, with the victims telling their story and the defense trying to make them seem non-credible. And, <sighs> right. And Will and Moore want to verdict comes down. Now for my third and final update, our last episode, Ted Conrad, Emily Sweeney of the Boston Globe had a Ted Conrad update that talked about some of his time in Massachusetts where he lived for 52 years under the name Tom Randell. I won't go into the whole story. You can listen to our last episode, but basically Ted walked out of the bank in Cleveland where he worked with $215,000 on July 11th, 1969, and formed a new identity as Tom Ramdell in the Boston area. And he confessed to his family who he was on his deathbed in May. Until then, nobody knew who he was, and the feds spent five decades trying to find him. And I just want to correct, I had in our episode that it was July 10th, his birthday, that he did the robbery. I looked up what day of the week, you know, was July 10th. 1969. And I thought it said Friday, but it must have said Thursday because the robbery was the day after his 20th birthday on July 11th. Just to correct that. Anyway, we had some lingering questions after the last episode and Emily Sweeney's story, which went online December 16th and was in the print edition of the Boston Globe this morning, 10 days later, answers a couple of our questions. First of all, how he got a social security number under the name Tom Randell. U.S. Marshal Peter Elliott told Sweeney that Conrad, on January 6, 1970, walked into a Social Security office in Boston, said his name was Thomas Randell, his address was 47 Commonwealth Ave in Boston, and he needed a Social Security number. So they gave him one. Um, <laughs> back then, I guess you did not need an ID, even a birth certificate wow. to get That's a Social wild. Security wow. number. And I wondered he had used July 10th, his regular birthday as his birthday, but changed the year from 1949 to 1947. And I wondered if it had to do with the draft that he did that. The first Mm -hmm. Vietnam draft lottery was December 1st, 1969, but it went back to 1944. So it was guys who were born between 1944 Mm -hmm. and 1950. So it didn't change anything. I think he just changed the year to make it trickier. As far as wondering what he told people about his family so they wouldn't, you know, look him up, he told people apparently that his entire family had died in a car crash. Yeah. And, you know, back then, without the internet and stuff, he couldn't have really looked that up. I don't know where he said it happened, but he said he was from Denver. Even now, it's hard to find uh, some stuff like that. 
a guy who worked with Conrad at the Pembroke Country Club in Pembroke, Mass., where Conrad was a golf pro for his first 10 or so years in the area, said that Ted slash Tom was a gregarious storyteller who liked being mm. around people. Mm. He once joked he was going to buy the country club with a briefcase full of cash. <laughs> he also bragged about his, what he called, world-famous potato salad and said he was going to market at World because it was so good. But I'm betting, though, it's not as good as our family recipe, mm. right? As we discussed in the last episode, he was obsessed with the movie The Thomas Crown Affair. Mm-hmm. And by 1971, he'd moved from Commonwealth Ave in Boston to Beacon Street, the same street where Thomas Crown's house was in the movie. Though Crown lived in the exclusive Beacon Hill neighborhood, and they filmed it in the D. Jordan Jr. mansion, Conrad's was about a mile away in a much less expensive and exclusive neighborhood of Boston. And I will say, too, that while I'm certain he went to Boston because of the movie, the Beacon Street thing isn't that big a deal. Beacon Street is one of Boston's main thoroughfares, and it runs all the way from Beacon Hill across the city into Brookline and Newton. And there are a lot of apartment buildings, and probably everybody who's ever lived around Boston has lived there at some point. Speaking of the Thomas Crown Affair... (laughs) Which was filmed in Boston, as I said, 1968. We, the three of us watched it yesterday. We also watched The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which was made in Boston in 1972. So we could compare and contrast. And I'll just say that um, the movies both involve robbing banks, but are polar opposite. No one is going to try to emulate the unfortunate Eddie Coyle played by Robert Mitchum. That said, I liked him and his movie, way more Mm. than Steve McQueen in the Thomas Crown Affair. I guess I could see why the Thomas Crown Affair would appeal to a 19-year-old boy, but I found it pretty much a male wet dream, and I don't mean that in a positive way if anybody makes the mistake of thinking I do. (laughs) The character was unlikable. I also thought the movie was misogynistic. And last episode, I remembered the end wrong. Here's a spoiler, but since the movie was made, you know, 50 plus years ago, you're going to have to live with it. He outwits Faye Dunaway, the insurance investigator who's trying to bring him in. He um, double crosses her. And it's basically, you know, ha ha, you stupid bitch for falling in love with me. Actually, if she was as smart as she was, a much better movie would have been her outsmarting him, but you can't have the woman win. I also feel like it was over-directed with too many split screens and other fancy Oh, God, yes. And a lot of wasted time. And also the theme song, which was nominated for Grammy. It did show Boston beautifully. On the other hand, Eddie Coyle shows some of the less attractive areas of Boston, is much grittier, but has a sense of humor, great dialogue, standout performances, not only by Robert Mitchum, but Peter Boyle and others Mm -hmm. you'll recognize. I think it really captures Boston. The filming is spare and not fancy, and I think it makes for a much better movie. And I hugely recommend The Friends of Eddie Coyle, if you do want to see how enamored young Ted Conrad may have become with what he did, I do recommend the Thomas Crown Affair. But as, as much as I like Steve McQueen in a lot of things, I enjoyed nothing about that movie except for seeing the Boston mm-hmm. fights. Liz? Yeah, I basically agree with you, Mo. And what struck me, having seen the Thomas Crown Affair many years ago, how much more negatively I see Thomas Crown, you know, the lead character played by Steve McQueen. He comes off to me now, as opposed to whatever reaction I had 
when I first saw it many years ago, I don't remember having nearly as negative reaction, but he does yeah. seem like a total sociopath and in a very kind of negative way. Now to me, maybe I've been so influenced by true crime. <laughs> we know so much more now than we did back then. And I'll just say, I also agree that The Prince of Eddie Coyle is a far superior film. Um, great performances, great script, even really well-paced and suspenseful bank robbery sequences, not an ounce of fat on it, absolutely spare, really authentic in terms of its depiction of locations. And it was, yeah, and it was based on a book by George Higgins, who at one time was a Boston Globe reporter. Becky, what did you think of the two movies? My opinion is pretty much the same as yours. I watched Thomas Crown Affair first. It was a snooze fest. Yeah. There were way too many montages of them doing things like riding around in that dune buggy destroying the dunes i was just like oh my god (laughs) it's gonna end i don't understand why anyone would want to watch it repeatedly honestly but yeah maybe a 20 year old guy in 1968 69 might i don't know yeah and i loved i really loved the forensic eddie but i love robert mitchum I think he's very underrated as an actor. I've always loved him. Mm, yeah. Mom did not like him. So I watched, I finished the movie uh, later. I watched it on it's my phone. Re- and then I was watching the Thomas Crown Affair. And it was during one of the bank robbery sequences. And dad was like, are you sure your mother should be watching this? <laughs> she's a grown woman. What, because she's going to go rob a bank. Because <laughs> the gun was upsetting her she wasn't even paying attention <laughs> there were many besides peter boyle who was very good in that movie i thought even yeah. though he apparently didn't like playing heavies because he was always stuck early in the, his early years um he was really good but even the lesser characters like that couple that's the bank robbers yes. the woman has been in so many yes, yes, she she was, that guy was the... billy ray tuggle or whatever yeah. his name was on all my children right and i so, figured that oh that's right but i figured too that they were supposed to be some kind of like weather underground that's what i thought too i really enjoyed that movie and um there was not a like it wasn't like i was sitting there like with thomas crown thinking okay i've seen like during the thomas crown affair i probably got up several times to go in the kitchen and get us food and stuff felt like you never missed it right right and during the friends of eddie coil in fact some scenes i said okay in the thomas crown affair i'm like okay i know where this scene's going i'm not going to miss anything but the friends of eddie coil i think i paused it once so we could do something but didn't want to miss anything every line of dialogue in that was good like the way people talked and everything was so much more real and genuine and also although they had boston accents it wasn't as some of like some of these recent movies that take place in boston it's like come on people i thought it was more more try too hard like we um like although it seemed it was very 70s. But, um, I was going to say, some of the Boston accents were very genuine accents. To the yes. point where I wondered if they got local people. Because not only the accents, but just the characters were more genuine. From the cops down to the, you know, and all the criminals were, were just pretty much kind of on the edge, scuzzy people just trying to make ends meet in yeah. a criminal way and stuff they weren't these like the whole thomas crown fantasy of this multi-millionaire which makes him even more of a sociopath right and then and then the fancy schmancy bank robbery caper is compared to the way they were robbing banks and the friends of eddie Coyle. and then caper was very overly complicated i think it would have been if he could have just embezzled the money or stolen it some way i guess that wouldn't have been fun 
well, like one big contrast, you know, in the Thomas Crown Affair, he lived in that big fancy Beacon Hill thing, and Faye Dunaway's like, oh, nice place. And then in the French yeah. buddy Coyle, Alex is little... living with his stewardess girlfriend in a in a, in a trailer, in a home a trailer, in the out in the country somewhere, and. And, and you know Eddie Coyle, Robert Mitchell's. Oh, this is a nice place. And well, he like, had that little tiny kitchen. I know the, that uh, little, which was very realistic. And yes, it Irish was. wife. Well, actually, yeah, she's Irish, but the actress is Scottish. I looked her up. But it was just it's if you're looking for a good movie and one that really depicts Boston of a certain era. number four and i felt like the dialogue in the in the scene where they were at boston garden watching the bruins i almost felt like that was ad-libbed it was it seemed improvised like when when he comes back with the beers and he's spilling them all over everybody like yeah peter boyle makes some remark like robert richard pissed his pants and yes but so anyway enough of that liz is going to bring us her story well this is a uh i guess you call it a series this perpetrator I had never heard of until I did the Michael Frankie murder case because a couple of particularly the Oregonian columnist Phil Stanford did a series of columns on this perpetrator. The connection brought it to my attention. This is not an unknown perpetrator, though. I mean, there are various TV shows and podcasts that have true crime fans will be true crime fans. May though I had never heard of him before, even though it's a Pacific Northwest locale. Uh, my sources for this story are the Oregonian between 1990 and 1997. The podcast I drew a lot from called Two Face, presented by Happy Faced, um, hosted by Melissa Moore and Lauren Bright Penchenko, who is also the executive producer, and she's the one who produced that podcast on Michael Frankie. I, the creation of a ser- serial killer by Jack Olson, and uh, couple episodes of a Netflix show that just was released this year called Catching Killers, um, episodes three and four, which deal with this series of events. So the whole scenario begins in a bucolic Pacific Northwest rural setting in Washington State. Uh, Melissa was the oldest of three children. Her mother was a stay-at-home mom. Her dad was a long-distance trucker. Uh, And she talks about how she felt loved and cherished in her childhood. She has many fond memories of her childhood home, her siblings, um, and her father, especially. And she talks about her excitement when he would come home after, you know, being gone for a long periods of time on his trucking, long haul trucking routes, um, and how excited she and her siblings would be. They could hear his, the wheels of his big rig, his big semi truck on the gravel of the drive going into their country home. She says how it was such a big rig, the windows would shake, you know, as he drove up towards the house Mm. and all three children would race out to greet him and fight over the change in his pockets. And he would like toss Mm. the change in the air and they'd all go scrambling. (laughs) And she also talks about how he was very, very large man. He was, well, I should say he is, he is still alive six foot six or so almost 300 pounds yeah. he, would, he would swing the kids up she remembers looking at the world from his shoulders you know as he kind of put her up on his shoulders and if you looked up at him on a sunny day his head you know was huge and he could eclipse the sun <laughs> and then later when her parents marriage fell apart uh, she still remembers how when he came to visit it was this big, huge deal. He would shower them with, you know, he'd take them to the grocery store and they could get whatever they wanted. And he'd shower them with groceries. And it seemed like, you know, kind of all bounty and good things came from him. 
in the podcast, Melissa takes them to visit her mother, Rose. And one of the things the podcaster notes is how Rose and Melissa don't look much alike at all, that Melissa looks very much like her father. And Rose has good memories, too, of the early years of her marriage and talks, for instance, about joining him on his truck runs down the West Coast or riding a motorcycle through Canada. And she said, you know, she married him very young. I think she was in her late teens. He was a good provider and she felt, quote unquote, safe with him. Melissa goes on, though, to say that she felt a change in the household when she was about five. Her father seemed much more distant when he returned from his long absences. Mm -hmm. But still, when her parents suddenly separated and began uh, divorce proceedings when she was about 11, it came as a shock. And, you know, sort of more disturbing kind of undertones begin to emerge when she talks about she has a memory of visiting her father after the divorce in a house he shared with his girlfriend. And she remembers trying to sleep in the room, one of her younger siblings with, with her, I think she had a younger sister and a younger brother. And she felt she couldn't sleep. She felt like she was being watched. She felt like something was trying to touch her hair or something. And she left the bedroom. She started walking towards her dad's room, thinking, well, I'll sleep in my dad's room. I'll, I'll be safe there. But the bad feelings just got worse as she approached her dad's bedroom. And she ended up sleeping in the hallway. You know, so she's about 11 or so right. years old. In the morning, she woke up to find her father stepping over her in the hall. And he asked her why she was sleeping there. And she told him how she felt something was touching her hair in the night and that there was something around her. And he told her, in quotes, don't pay any attention to them. They bother me all the time at night. Don't pay them any mind. Uh, the mm. next night, she slept on the living room couch and remembers looking up at the ceiling. She had the TV on silent so that she'd have some light. And there was some sort of weird spatter pattern up on the ceiling. Mm. And she kept trying to figure out what it could be. And she says all night, the kitchen cabinet doors opened and shut, opened and shut, even though no one was in there. And she spent the whole night wondering if she was dreaming or imagining or seeing things. Now as an adult, Melissa has come to see her father and his behavior towards them and their family in a much more negative way. She remembers now how he denigrated and demeaned her mother, constantly criticizing her, telling her she was a terrible housekeeper, complaining about her food, her way. It seemed everything she did was wrong. Disturbing memories that kind of come to light. Mm. As, uh, she, one of the things she says is that from an early age, her father's language with her and, and discussions with her were sexually inappropriate. He would complain to her of her mother's sexual inadequacies. Oh, uh, he constantly sexually harassed waitresses and other women in front of her and her siblings and her mother, openly displayed pornographic pictures and magazines in his truck and in her <laughs> spaces. There were also things that although she and her siblings and her mother all say he was never physically violent or sexually abusive to any of them in any kind of physical way, it was clear that he could be very frightened. She remembers a childhood friend who accused her, Melissa, of stealing the girl's coat. And it was a false accusation. But the mother apparently of this girl apparently thought Melissa had really stolen the girl's coat, who she probably lost it and was just making up a story for her mother. She said her father went over to those parents. And she said, I don't know what he said to them, but whatever it was, it terrified them. The girl never came to her house to play again mm. or <laughs> had anything to do with her family again. A very, very disturbing memory she has is her brother and herself finding a cat in their barn, a pretty black cat, and they were petting it. She was said maybe they were about five or six and their father approached them 
And he began to lovingly pet the cat. And they were very nervous and tense about this because uh, he hated cats. He suddenly began twisting the cat's neck and holding it down and basically killing it by by basically wringing its neck. Two of them were screaming for him to stop, but he didn't until the cat was dead and they didn't tell her mother. Now, Keith, in his many interviews and... Keith is the dad, by the way. Oh, yes. Keith is the dad's name. I'll give him the full name later. He later describes a similar incidents or something and says that the mother, Rose, was there and witnessed the whole thing. So they always knew there was something off about their father. In his family, there was I guess. a way of dismissing his odd and disturbing behavior. Whenever he did these quite disturbing things, it would be, oh, that's just Keith. <laughs> even to the, Melissa continued, even with these things, Melissa throughout her youth continued to really idolize her father. In fact, after their divorce, she blamed her mother for driving her father away. He basically <laughs> told her that the mother had broken up the family mm. and she interpreted his often hostile behavior towards her mother as resentment about the divorce and that she broke up the marriage. And she also noted how though, even after the divorce, her mother was often dependent on Keith, the father to give her money and help her out in various ways. And she said, it always seemed that they were incompetent to do things without him and that he still controlled them mm. even after the divorce and he was no longer living with them in any permanent way. Uh, Rose also talks about, the wife also talks about how her early happy memories are clouded by a more disturbing reality. She later found out that her husband was unfaithful to her from really literally the wedding day on. Like he was oh, out, that like, surprise, with one of the bridesmaids. Yeah, when she was having her bride photos taken inside and the, it was the bridesmaid who told her years later because she felt guilty well, about it she will get calls from unidentified women asking for keith when she confronted him he would say if you only knew <laughs> she was with him on a trucking run in arizona he was acting very like he just didn't want her around they were in a at a truck stop you know he was a really big guy he picked her up put her in the arms of one of the basically what she called a kind of truck stop pimp and told him he could have her this guy, oh. this pimp. And of course she like, you know, wormed her way out away from the guy and, and they got back and Keith struck, but they didn't talk the whole way home. You know, more, as more of those things began to happen, she realized she made a big mistake marrying this guy. Oh. As Melissa's talking in these conversations now with her mother, Rose, she realizes that her family home was never really safe. One of the things that happened where they left very, very quickly, because he basically just announced after 15 years of marriage, he wanted a divorce. They had to get out and they packed up really quickly with just a few days worth of clothing and went to their mother's, you know, their maternal grandparents, their mother's parents. Uh, when he brought their stuff later, it was all messed up and broken. It's like he just threw things in the truck and all the things like baby pictures and personal mementos were gone. Rose talks about how things really changed in the marriage when the first child, Melissa, was born. She talks about some things that happened that first year that Melissa was a baby. She, she said one night she woke up at around 3 a.m. to see Melissa playing in her crib. And she's like, where's the light coming from? Why can I see her? And she realized it was light. From a fire raging in the bathroom Hi. she jabbed keith who seemingly was asleep grabbed melissa out of her crib and ran out the door and only then did the fire alarm go off she said whatever the fire had caught and had spread so quickly the fire alarms hadn't even gone off yet until she was already out the door um she says something also about how keith had taped the vent in the bathroom but i couldn't catch this was on the podcast and i couldn't quite catch what she meant three months later 
Keith had an irrigation job in Wenatchee, Washington. They traveled up there and living in her parents' travel trailer, and they were parked near a lake at the bottom of a hillside with a lot of long, dry grass. One day when Keith was at work, Rose looks up to see a large fire racing down the hillside in the dry grass towards the trailer. She said she plumped Melissa in the shores of the lake, grabbed the garden hose, started to hose everything down around the trailer, thinking if this fire gets any closer, I'm going to have to go in the lake, take Melissa and go further out in the lake in the deep water. Fire truck arrived just in time. And then Keith arrived about 15 minutes after that. And she said she never could figure out how he found out about the fire so quickly because he was supposed to be at work. But he, mm-hmm. he shows up about 15 minutes later. One month after that, the three of them were camping at a church camp. Keith slept in his truck. Rose and baby Melissa were in the cabin. In the middle of the night, two bears started coming around the cabin, pushing against the door. There was only a leather, a kind of leather latch holding the door shut. And she was terrified that this bear would get in. They did eventually go away. Later, she realized that Keith had cleaned fish right in front of the door. And he was an outdoorsman, had been raised, and knew better than to do that because that would definitely attract bears. She talks about how that from that first year when you were born, Melissa, I felt this oppressive dark force that seemed to be want, trying to kill us. Yeah. And she said, and I realized, I eventually I realized it was your father. <laughs> and, um, and it's really sad because she continued to stay married to him. And she says, well, I believe the children were protected spiritually. You can kind of see her rationalization. She clearly was, you know, she was certainly psychologically abused. You know, she was dependent on him and in fear of him. And uh, Melissa had heard about the first fire, but never heard about the other incidents until she was having this discussion with mother, you know, for the podcast. And as I said, they all claimed he was not physically abusive. But as I said, Melissa now sees how he was very emotionally and psychologically controlling abusive. But she said later when she heard about his crimes, which happened in a short period of time, a five-year period between 1990 and 95, or let's say his, his lethal crimes, she really compartmentalized them. And, and she really thought he was like a different person when she was a little kid. And she said hearing these stories and things now made her realize that he was always a psychopath and he was capable of killing them even when she was little. She said, when I was a teenager, I thought he, he's capable of killing me. What, but she thought he would never have done it when we were younger. But now she thinks differently. Rose talks even about how after Keith was eventually in prison, and we'll get into why, receiving threatening phone calls when she was alone with her children at night, someone telling her, I know where you're at. I see you in the kitchen describing what she was wearing. She even remembers the front door jiggling. She was taking care of someone's dogs who she didn't normally have with her. And they went crazy. And whoever it was went away. And she said later, Keith had told her, I'm going to get you even though I'm in prison. And she was, she's convinced he hired someone to try to get her. Up until the time she's a teenager, Melissa has kind of focused on or remembered the good stuff, right? These more disturbing things come through later. And that kind of whole downfall happens when Melissa is 15. Her mother gathered her and her younger siblings around the table to tell them the news that her father had been arrested for murder. He was arrested for the murder of Julie Wayneham, who was at least an acquaintance of him, if not a friend he claimed. She was his fiance. Her family adamantly denies that she did not have that close a relationship with him. Her nude body was found March 11th, 1995, dumped down a bank of a viewpoint, Washington State Route 14 in the Columbia River Gorge, east of Washougal. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from Melissa, you know, kind of upon hearing about her father being 
charged with this horrible crime. On one side of the coin, he is a loving family man and he is a good friend and he's a good provider. He has everything as a child you want from a dad. But on the other side of the coin, he has everything that scares you, everything that could hurt you. He goes from protector to predator. Wrapping my mind around it is impossible. So kind of a little change of pace here, moving forward. On January 22nd, 1990, the body of Tanya Bennett was found about a mile from the Crown Point Vista House in the Columbia Gorge in Oregon. Off a, there's a historic highway that used to be the highway that went west east across Oregon. We've been on um, it. And we've been on it many, many, many times. Yeah, it's a windy wooded road that's above what is now the big interstate down near the river. And you can drive along it and there are beautiful waterfalls and sights. Tanya Bennett was a pretty 23-year-old. She suffered from mild cognitive deficits, uh, tended to be very trusting and friendly. She mm. routinely hugged people upon meeting them Aww. and approached men unwarily in the local bars that she often wanted. She had had a troubled life living on the streets at times, possibly, possibly doing sex work at times. At one point, uh, her mother even had her hospitalized for about six months for mental health issues. Her body was found along this slope up the small historic highway. She'd been brutally and bloodily beaten about the face. Her, there was a lot of blood on her clothes. She'd been strangled, partially unclothed. And one strange feature was that the button fly for jeans had been cut out. Two men had been seen playing pool with Tanya the night before in a, in a local Gresham tavern. Um, and police inquiries followed those leads for a while, but they all seemed to peter out. They were looking for anyone who could have interacted her in the hours before she died. And uh, now we're going to hear from Phil Stanford four years after Tanya Bennett's body is found. Over a week, he writes a series of six columns on this uh, incident. So these are his words. The letter, unsigned and written on pale blue paper, has a happy face at the top of the first page. Mm -hmm. Two tiny circles for eyes and upturned silver sliver sorry, of a moon for a mouth. Have a nice day. That I think that's Phil Stanford giving his little interpretation. Right. All five of five, it says next to the cartoon face. However, the letter is six pages long. So what does that mean? Five what? Five murders. That's what. I would like to tell my story, the writer of the letter begins. The exclamation point is all his. So is the labored printing and the odd mixture of capital and lowercase letters. On or around January 20th, 1990, I picked up Sonia Bennett and took her home. I raped her and beat her real bad. Her face was all broke up. Then I ended her life by pushing my fist into her throat. Right away, something doesn't fit. In the first place, as you already know, if you follow local crime news, or better, if you have access to the newspaper's library, the name is Tanya, not Sonia Bennett. And she was killed, according to the experts who examined the body on the night of January 21st, not the 20th. But that's not the biggest problem here. The problem, if that's the word for it, is that two people are already serving time in prison for the crime. Mm -mm. So the early leads on the Tanya Bennett case were drying up. But, and that was Phil Sanford's column you were reading. Right. And that was four years after the right. body is found, okay. that he's writing this column. So all kinds of things are going to happen between Tanya Bennett's body being found and, and that right. column. So we're back at yeah, 1990, the aftermath of Tanya Bennett's body being found. The detectives who were Multnomah County Sheriff's Office detectives, for the most part, there were maybe some Portland cops as well. Suddenly, the detectives feel they got a break. A woman named Laverne Pavlinak called, at first she calls anonymously, and they managed to trace her, who she is, claimed that her living boyfriend, John Sosnowski, likely murdered the girl. She overheard him 
bragging about it to another man in a bar, so she claimed. When that didn't seem to get much action from the police, she then called again, claiming that she had helped actually helped him get rid of the body. She had actually falsely accused John Sosnowski. Crimes in the past, she was in her late 50s. He was 18 years younger. He was an abusive drunk. She basically, as she said later, wanted to get him out of her life and accusing him. Um, She was a sweet kind of sad person. You know, she kept calling with kind of more elaborate scenarios. Then she said she had been present when John killed Tanya. Uh, the police said, okay, a search warrant was issued. She was being very persistent. And a search of Laverne and John's house produced nothing. And their house was in Wilsonville, all the way mm. across town and the west side of the metro area from the gorge. The only thing they found was a letter addressed to John Sosnowski with a written on it, a T capital Bennett dash a good piece. As she was questioned further, she claimed that she had not just witnessed the killing, she had actually helped John kill the girl under mm. duress. And yes. then several days after that first search, she called the cops saying this and said, I found a purse that's not mine in the trunk of my car. They came and it was, it looked very much like the purse that Tanya's family said she had with her that they did not find with the body. And inside it, lo and behold, was a piece of a button fly jeans Mm. so immediately they go to arrest her they go to arrest john at his place of work they start to process them and further interview them where laverne continues to make more and ever more elaborate confessions with more and more details by even within 24 hours the lab told them that both the purse and the cutout piece of cloth had no connection to Tanya Bennett and Laverne even admitted she had planted them there. (laughs) She wanted the police to take her claims more seriously. (laughs) However, they continued saying this woman is wacky and is making things up. They continued to act under the assumption that her confession was genuine and they continued to work. She eventually gives 13 confessions, which is basically, as you'll see them kind of figuring out ways for her to give more. Right, more. feeding her information. Yeah. One of the things they said, and even the detective who's interviewed in that uh, Catching Killers, John Ingram, who is genuinely regretful, and I think is a good example of someone who, as he was one of the people who was interviewing her, and I think did not realize the extent, she seemed genuinely to think that she must be guilty but was not recognizing how much he and his fellow detectives may have been kind of leading her along. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, he said, we had her go down the high, the historic highway, go down the road and show us where the spot was that they dumped her body. Cause she was able to say that, you know, she had a rope around her neck and the, that cutout of the fly had not been in the papers. Right. It turns out she had planted them. He talks about how she got it exactly, the place. She said they drove by, mm. and then she said, wait a minute, we've gone too far, and they turn around and they go back. And they seem to think that was very, very definitive. John says Nazi is saying, I didn't know this girl. I don't know anything about it. Then he they present him with Laverne's confession, mm. and he basically says, well, I, okay okay, I kind of met her. And, you know, he sort of gives a half-hearted confession. Now, does he say that right off the bat? No, 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 no. And what then happens is she goes on trial. They both soon recant their confessions, but they're used in their trial. Laverne goes on trial first. She's convicted of murder. 
um, and the jury said they found her confessions, which were on tape, to be extremely compelling. John then, although he's now claiming he had nothing, he didn't even know her, had nothing to do with the murder. I didn't know Tanya, not his lawyer says, she's been found guilty. You're going to be found guilty if you go to trial. And he basically agrees to take mm-hmm. a plea. Um, and they both get life. Mm-hmm. But something about the case never set well with Detective John Ingram of the Noma County Sheriff's Office. This is from the Catching Killers show that was aired this year. He said it just never really set well with him. The DA, he said, really, really was pushing for it strongly. You know, some things about it seemed really definitive. Other things were really sort of out of sync. And mm-hmm. But he said when he brought Laverne into custody, she turned and hugged him. And he said he felt like he was putting his own mother in jail. Um, so from Phil Stanford in the Oregonian, again, this is May 1994, another, another column a couple days later. And that, except for one unsettling bit, bit of information that came to light during Pavlinek's trial, is the story of their case. In the middle of her trial, the police in Livingston, Montana, called the Oregon authorities to inform them that a custodian at the local Greyhound bus depot had discovered a disturbing message scrawled on the restroom wall. Um, this is the killer, or the one claiming to be the killer. I killed Tanya Bennett, January 21st, 1990, in Portland, Oregon, it said. I beat her to death, raped her, and loved it. Yes, I'm, I enjoy myself, too. People took the blame, and I'm free. And then a few days later, another one, just like it was discovered at a truck stop in Umatilla, which is in um, Oregon. Of course, neither of these supposed confessions was ever presented to the jury. As Redding observed, without knowing the identity of the person who wrote them, it was impossible to know whether they were bona fide. What makes them so interesting today, some three years later, this is Stanford still, you know, talking, is the letter the Oregonian received three weeks ago from a person who, in light of the smiling cartoon face at the top of the first page, might be called the happy face killer. Mm. In his letter, the happy face killer claims Mm. to murdered five women, including Tanya Bennett. The reason some are taking his claim seriously is that in at least two of the cases, possibly more, he provides details that could have been known only to the murderer or police investigators. And one more thing, the handwriting in the letter matches the handwriting of the conf- confessions on the restroom walls. Uh-huh. Happy face uh-huh. confessor wrote, she, Tanya, was my first, and I thought I would not do it, do it again, but I was wrong. Stanford had actually, when he got uh-huh. that letter, you know, kind of enumerating these five people this person claimed to kill tanya and then four other women a couple in california one in wyoming um one in somewhere else um, near nebraska Uh, i don't even remember all the places but he called each jurisdiction and found in each case the police had a body that was found in a location like the letter writer described with details that letter writers described and one of the things sanford said is uh, he argued we really have to relook at this conviction of Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnowski, he said, because these were details that were not published in papers. And even if some of these details were publicly available for one guy to be finding this much detail over mm-hmm. these widely scattered crime sites and everything is really, really unlikely. Again, remember, this is long before the internet and everything, right? So someone was unhappy with the Pavlinak and Sosnowski verdict, Phil Stanford pointed out. And um, one of the things he also pointed out was in the Pavlinak and Sovnowski scenario, one thing that was a really, he said there were many things that were inconsistent in the prosecution's case, but said one thing that he found incredibly a huge gap that was never resolved was that Tanya was 
definitely seen in the BNI Tavern in Gresham at least as late as 8.30 p.m. on the night of January 21st, which is the night she was killed. John Sosnowski was seen around the same time at JB's bar at a truck stop in Wilsonville, 24 miles away. Neither Tanya mm. or John had a driving license mm. or cars. John you know, um, Laverne was the one who drove him around. Right. So he found that to be one of the big kind of you know gaps that never was totally resolved. Again, full Stanford of the Oregonian in May of 1994. Even serial killers, it seems, can have their feelings hurt. The man who would be known as the happy face killer goes on to complain that he sent a letter to the Washington County court system taking responsibility <laughs> for number one, meaning the murder of Tanya Bennett, the woman he claims was his first victim. But nothing has been in your paper. <laughs> As it turns out, this is true. On March 29th, someone sent a letter, postmarked in Portland, to the Washington County Courts. One of five, it says at the top. And the bottom circle of the number five is a little happy face. So far, mm. he adds, I killed Miss Bennett January 20th, 1990, and left her one and a half miles east of Lateral Falls on a switchback, he begins he goes on to tell about the murder just as it was described in the letter that was sent to the Oregonian a few weeks later, postmarked in St. Paul, a small town, about halfway between Portland and Salem. Only one important detail is new. After he beat her and raped her, he says he cut off the buttons on her jeans and left her facing downhill. As photos of the crime scene show, Tanya Bennett's body was facing downhill. No one except the murderer or someone else intimately involved in the investigation would have known this. So what does this all mean? Are we to conclude that the real killer of Tanya Bennett, as well as four other women, is still on the loose and that two innocent people are serving time in prison for a murder they did not commit? Not at all, says Jim McIntyre, the senior deputy district attorney who prosecuted Laverne Pavlinak. It wouldn't shock me at all to find out that somebody talked to somebody who talked to somebody. What the letters is what the scrawled in quotes, confessions that were discovered during the Pavlinak trial. The official theory is that Sosnowski must have given the details of the crime to another inmate. The addition of four <laughs> other murders, complete in at least two instances with details that were not released to the public, complicates things since Sofnowski was in prison when they were committed. A forensic handwriting expert who examined copies of the letters and the restroom messages concluded that all were written by the same person. She also concluded, after comparing them to a sample of Sofnowski's handwriting, that Sosnowski did not write any of them. According to McIntyre, this is remember that's the prosecutor, as well as members of the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department, for taking another look at the case. The best explanation they can come up with is that Sosnowski must have gotten the details of the other four murders from a fellow convict who was the actual killer. To them, this does not seem at all far-fetched, and they expect to prove it before long. From the Oregon Women's Correctional Center, Laverne Pavlinet continues to proclaim her innocence of everything except framing John Sosnowski and herself for the murder of Tanya Bennett. I'm innocent, she says, and so is John. I just made it up because I wanted to get rid of him, and I wanted to <laughs> take him away so I could be safe. I figured they'd probably just question him and let him go when they realized he didn't do it. Everything I told them, she said, referring to Do detectives John Ingram and Alan Corson, poor side of the case, I got out of the newspapers. And every time I tell them something, they'd say, Laverne, this doesn't sound like much evidence to me. So I tell them something better. So they believe me. The whole thing just snowballed on me. Mm. Also, in another source, she says that um, when they first served the search warrant, where they found nothing except that envelope, with Tanya Bennett's name written by her. And that same handwriting that's, by the way, said this is Laverne's handwriting. She was able to get a good look at the search warrant. And they named, they enumerated what they were looking for and included. A mm. And so she's like, oh, those are things they're looking for. So she got some and then later mm. called them. She also talks about how later people said, how were you able to spot the dump site? And she said they actually had photos of the 
area in the paper. But also, she said, as we drove by, I saw that there were these red markings on the mm -hmm. curb and there was trampled undergrowth. You know, later when they so took the jury out, you know, the jury who who later were still thinking, oh, she must have done it. Two people in the jury. They said, well, they took us out there and there's no way you could have been able to figure out it was so difficult. to." And I said, yeah, that's a year later when the right. undergrowth is no longer trampled. Right. I, I read another case or saw on TV or something, a similar thing where a guy confessed to a murder he didn't commit. And one of the big things was he led them to the body site and there were actually markers in the ground from when they yeah. found the body. And so that's how. Yeah, was. I know. Oh, it's like um, that. And the show, it's really good in that Catching Pillars. They actually show, I'm as she's talking, that. they show the photo that the police took of her pointing out the site. And then they showed the uh, pictures that had appeared in the newspaper, you know, <laughs> of the same I exact part. In March of 95, this, so remember, this is then nine months or more after these columns that Phil Stanford is writing. And where Phil Stanford is saying, hey, yeah. I'm thinking these people in jail for killing Tanya Bennett are not the ones who did it. And this guy is writing to people and he's mad because they're getting credit for his, <laughs> but he doesn't want to get caught either, you know, so he right. Can. So in March of 1995, Keith is arrested or actually he's first detained for questioning because he knows Julia Winningham, the woman who was found in March of 1995. He also was one of the last people to see her or be seen with her. So he's a prime suspect for her murder. They detain him, then they release him. He goes on a truck run. He claims that he tried to commit suicide a couple of times. Uh, An I serial killer, is um, that the book by Jack, Jack F. Olson? Olson. Yeah. That is mainly Keith's own accounts of his full narrative with a few chapters of family members kind of given a little bit of a corrective and some more context. And he's full, I mean, his whole life, basically, he's full of self-pity and persecution complex. Typical. And, and I, I wonder if he ever even really tried to commit suicide. He killed so many people, it seems like if he no really tried hard enough, he would have yeah. been successful. He actually uh, then wrote a letter to his brother, Brad, uh, confessing mm -hmm. his crimes. Then he said he went back and forth whether he should mail it, and then he finally mailed it. And so what ends up happening, and this is from the Oregonian, the prosecution, um, they've already arrested Keith Hunter Jesperson, is his full name. The hunter asked that Jefferson be compelled to provide handwriting samples that could be compared with the letter he wrote to his brother near Spokane on March 23rd, the day he confessed to killing Julian Winningham. He says in the letter, I truly am a black sheep. I have been a killer for five years and I've killed eight people, assaulted more. And he said when he was first arrested, after he, you know, he sent that letter, the first phone call they allowed him to make, he telephoned his brother and said, destroy that letter. And the brother's like, hey, I already gave it to the police. Said, I opened it. I couldn't believe what I was reading. I told dad about it. Dad said, you've got it. We've got to take that to the police. He's all like pissed off at them. And I'm like, you know, I mean, he sends it. And this is his, um, I guess his charging hearing or whatever. The rest of the hearing was devoted to detectives account of events leading up to his um, murder confession. This is kind of interesting. By long distance phone to Clark County Sheriff's Detective Rick Bochner, Clark County is in the part of Washington State on the other side of the gorge from where Tanya Bennett was found. Julie Winningham was found basically across the Columbia River in Washington uh, five years later. Jefferson was in a diner at the 4K truck stop off Interstate 10 in Cochise County in Arizona. He was on a truck run. They had detained him, questioned him, then let him. I, I, they, I think they must not have thought they really had enough. And they were right. keeping him under surveillance as he did this truck run. He, hmm. Buckner was at the National Guard Armory in Sandy, Oregon, frantically trying to tape the confession from a cellular phone to a handheld tape recorder. Buckner hmm. testified Wednesday that batteries in the recorder died before he got all the conversation, but he got enough to have Jefferson, Jefferson arrested that night. 
Aikochi's kind of sheriff's deputies. Then as it continues after his arrest, news accounts continue. Jesperson claims to have committed these other murders. These other jurisdictions in California, Florida, Washington, Wyoming, and Nebraska, and a weigh in always seeing if his details match up with their details for various of these bodies. They have some who are identified, some who still aren't identified. And then uh, Clark County detectives and Clark County DA begin to advocate for saying, this guy killed Tonya Bennett. Multnomah County were the ones to investigate that. That was their case. They hang on longer trying to insist that Pavlinek and Sosnowski. Um, they even also not only handwriting analysis, but they use DNA to prove that Jesperson wrote these letters, including the ones to his brother. And he, he wrote one to Rose saying that he had done something that was bigger than O.J. Simpson. And everything <laughs> she's like, and she said she got it. She's like, what a, what an ass. You know, she just right. think he was making up stupid right. shit, you know? But I don't know if, if they ever found any DNA on Tonya Bennett's effects and everything. And when Pavlinak and Sosnowski were on trial in 91, they didn't have the DNA capability. So ultimately during the course, just the course of these few months of you know, the investigation continuing and Jesperson being prepared for trial, that basically the career uh, as a of a serial killer of Keith Hunter Jesperson uh, was laid out. He admitted to most of the killings. Uh, the first one was Tonya Bennett in 1990. And July or August of 1992, he killed a Jane Doe, later known as Claudia in Blythe, California. Mostly, he usually sexually assaulted these women and choked them or strangled them to death, often with just using, he had a, he was, he had a huge hands and he would just kind of hold their punch in or hold his, his fist against their throat. And I'm not going to get into any of the details except to say that he often, and he describes this at great length in his own accounts, would uh, let them come to and then do it again multiple times. Uh, you know, uh, so it was really horribly sadistic. A third murder, a body found Cynthia Lynn Rose in Sherlock, California. Fourth murder was in November 1992, Lori A. Pentland outside Salem, Oregon. The fifth murder was another Jane Doe found in Santanella, California. At least two of these, by the way, were quite decomposed when they were found and the police assumed they were um, drug overdoses. But as it turns out, then once they kind of did more thorough, I think they even exhumed one of them and found that there was evidence that she'd been strangled. The sixth murder as a Jane Doe found, found west of Crestview, Florida. Keith claims her name was Suzanne. The seventh murder was this is one of the worst is a woman named Angela Surprise near Spokane Washington she rode for him for about a week um in the in the truck and he has all these things about how she nagged him and he eventually killed her after he sexually assaulted her and then he talks about how he tied her body under the truck oh. and dragged her for several miles down the highway so to grind off her face and prints oh. so she would not be identified which is sort of just more sadistic bullshit oh. The, the last victim it's was Julianne Winningham, who many sources continue to refer at, to as his fiance, including her son mm. and her family members adamantly say she was not his fiance. And also some of the women who are routinely referred to as prostitutes and everything, their family claims they were not, you know, so there, there was a, mm. a woman who got away who he assaulted, who was, he, again, you know, he, she was at a truck stop. She got in a huge fight with her husband. She was a young mother. She had a baby with her and Keith picked her up and tried to kill her. And she managed to get out of the truck cab. And she did, I think it was, but it was a day or two before she reported mm -hmm. it and he was long gone. He claims over many months and over the years to have committed as many as 160 murders 
then he would recant. <laughs> but these are the eight murders that they have, right. you know, quite definitively credited Ugh. to him. He eventually pled guilty to killing Julie Winningham, and then also ultimately admitted to killing three other women, Lori M. Pentland, Angela Surprise, and Tanya Bennett, Lori M. Pentland, Julie M. Winningham, and Angela Surprise. Those were the four that he's actually admitted to, and he's serving concurrent life terms. Mm. He's still yeah. in, he's still in the Oregon penitentiary. Interestingly enough, it took a while. It took several months to get poor Laverne and John Sosnowski. Of out. course. Long after it was clear, in November of 1995, uh, the Clark County DA and family members of these people and everything were trying to get uh, them released. But Oregon post-conviction relief law, at least then, was very narrow. Mm -hmm. And the judge said that they it had to be um, new evidence alone of their innocence was not enough. And so the Oregonians were writing, well, if it's not enough, then oh, the law. But eventually, by November 26, 1995, Judge uh, Lipscomb in Oregon rules that Pavlinak and Sosnowski are exonerated and they are free. But even then, two of the jurors in her trial were still convinced she was guilty. And then she must have, she and John Sosnowski must have helped this guy. Her confession was so convincing. It shows the power of the false, these false confessions. Yeah. And well, it also shows the power of prosecution and law enforcement to convince people right. that people just will not believe that law enforcement could lead someone into a false confession. Well, I think there's some people that are just never going to... They don't admit that they were totally... Yes. They basically convicted two innocent people. I want to talk a little bit about Keith Jesperson and some people's assessments of him and what was going on with him. Yeah. His daughter, Melissa, says that at one point early in his imprisonment, she was visiting him. She, for years, she did visit him regularly in prison. She never doubted his guilt. Yeah. And he said to her, do you want to know why? And she said at the time, she just, she didn't want to hear it. Then later she regretted, but she then eventually believes whatever he told her would be bullshit almost certainly anyways. Mm -hmm. um, there's exactly. a lot of documentation of his upbringing, though some of it is from him. As you can tell, he was one of these killers who wanted to let people know what he had done. He for years, was, would phone up Phil Stanford at the Oregonian. He would send letters to the media. He would do all kinds of things. In fact, there was even in 1997, he there was a, a AOL website. A woman in London was the sponsoring entity where he and two other serial killers wrote about serial killing and everything. Mm. Um, Governor oh. Wyoming and Polly Class's father and family members of the victims and everything finally put pressure on AOL to take down the website. Mm. And his contribution, he called it the self-start serial killer kit, where he, uh, you know, talked how you can be a serial killer. And he had an essay where he compared his victims to piles of trash, discarded oh, along U.S. highways, offered web surfers a life-size inflatable dial named for one of his victims, along with sexually explicit and violent instructions. Jesus Christ. So he he goes on and on in his and many of his writings and everything, and in this book, I, Serial Killer, where the writer has basically kind of presented his narrative. He basically is like, well, I regretted what I did and uh, da, 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 but it's kind of basically. Yeah, it doesn't sound it. like it. There were a number of interviews done with a psychologist named Al Carlisle. And it seems like he was one of the, again, one of these people, you know, like we were saying, Mo, these tendencies of psychologists and others and podcasters or whatever to take the 
serial killer's words at face value and not question what he's telling them. Mm-hmm. And he goes on and on in these interviews. Um, and this is reflected a lot in that book, I Serial Killer, you know, that he felt in his upbringing that he was targeted. He was set apart from his brothers and sisters. He was physically abused. And there might be some truth to it. But, you know, I think it's one of those things where you can assume that he certainly exaggerated things. Yes. Um, he he grew up in this really rugged, you know, they had roots in Saskatchewan, his family. He was born in Chilliwack, British Columbia. They had, um, I think there was at least six, there were five kids in the family. I mm. think he was like the middle kid. He had two brothers and two sisters. His father was a trained engineer and was one of these people who could build or fix anything. They lived out in the country. His father had all kinds of things set up. He could build a barn on his own. He had all these like kind of ingenious gadgets set up all over the property. They had animals. But he always said how his father was a very harsh disciplinarian, used the belt, and Keith claimed brutally, brutally beat him numerous times, much more so than his other mm. siblings, said he was always very large and ungainly and awkward. He was the only one of his siblings to not go to college. He claims his father told him he wasn't capable of going to college. Uh, one of the things that Rose talks about that uh, she said she learned from his sister and his mother and everything when she first married him was that he had a really bad fall and had a bad he- head injury mm. from climbing a rope in gym. And he also apparently had another, his dream was to go into the Royal Mounted Police and he had another injury when he was training that, or so he says, that disqualified Mm -hmm. him. So he goes on and on about all this and felt how he was being targeted by his father for particularly harsh and brutal treatment. The other kids say, yeah, our dad did use a belt, but we don't think it was really that bad. It was, you know, I think people did that in those days. One thing though that's kind of interesting is Rose, Keith's wife, ex-wife, talks about how she really hated Leslie, the father. Um, She said he was extremely denigrating to his own wife, Gladys, that um, he was very sexually inappropriate with her, Mm. that he propositioned her all the time, that he like would grope her and tickle her and everything in front of Keith and Keith wouldn't do anything. And she was very glad when they moved away. So she, they weren't near him anymore. One of the things that Keith says was that his father took them out to kill animals. Now this is one of those things that you're, you're living on a farm. It's just the kind of normal killing of vermin, like muskrats and rodents and stuff like that. Or is it really kind of over the top killing and gleefully killing in the way that Keith claims his father right. did? And he even claims that his father videotaped his teenage boys, like killing all these animals. And they would later show, not videotape, but took home movies and would mm-hmm. then later show the wives of their wives and everything years later and say, oh, look what you married and everything. And I didn't hear any corroboration of that. In this book, I, Serial Killer, he has chapters where the father saying, yeah, I used to strap, but you know, I was had a strap used on me. And yeah, I was a strict disciplinarian, but everyone used corporate corporal punishment where, you know, in our community. I mean, so, but I never beat him like he's saying I beat him and I never did this and I never did that. The siblings, you don't really hear what they have to say too much. But one of the stories that Keith has is that his father, there was something, it was a generator or something in the greenhouse. And he said his father would dare kids to go up and touch it and it would shock them really badly and he said his father to a lot of glee in shocking kids and Keith said this happened to him a number of times and his father seemed to particularly like he would say Keith stand there and he would shock him with this generator and Keith felt he like he had to stand there and get a whipping Mm. and he'd be shocked and he said it was 220 volts and and this is Mm. interesting Leslie said when he was confronted with this by the psychiatrist or whoever was questioning him um, he said 
well, yeah, I chalked them, but it was just 12 volts, not and and I'm like, you know, I mean, maybe he's right, but that is really bad. Right. Even if it's a minor electric right. shock, it's just totally inappropriate. Right. And it kind of shows something about Leslie that maybe he wasn't as brutal as Keith claimed, and maybe he didn't single Keith out as much as Keith claimed. But there was something off about him. And oh, I didn't mention fires. Keith had there are a number of reports of him long before he had the head injury in high school, by the way, of him going above board, killing not just the kind of vermin animals his father encouraged to kill on the farm, but killing cats and dogs and often killing them in very Ugh. sadistic ways. And I that won't was get before into the head injury. That was before the head mm-hmm. injury. And there were several instances where he attacked boys when he was a child, like eight years old, 10 years old, they, who he claimed had been bullying him and brutally attacking them. He also mm-hmm. set a lot of fires when he was a kid. And, and then he also said that after he killed Tanya Bennett to relieve his homicidal impulses, he went on a big kind of arson spree and was uh, set a lot of fires for a year and a half or so. And then that didn't satisfy him anymore. So I'm thinking about the fires that Rose talked about right. and everything. So he, he committed mm-hmm. arson. There's also a reference in a source about a great uncle, Charlie, who supposedly, I don't know if he was convicted of something or was accused of something, might have had a history of sexual sadism. So there might have been things in his gene pool. Again, you can't take what he says at face value. He is full of self-pity. You know, this is his overriding thing is that I was persecuted. I was this big, ungainly, awkward kid. I never had a girlfriend until I met Rose. I never went to the prom. I you know, people were always bullying me. They called me Igor hmm. in high school because I was this big, hulking, awkward guy. He said I was smart enough to go to college, but my dad said I couldn't do it. And apparently he tested his IQ was at 102, which is well within average. It's, I mean, it's not brilliant or anything. No. Um, one thing I'll say before I wrap it up is that Al Carlisle, the psychiatrist, and I think Jack Olson's book is based a lot on those interviews. You hear excerpts of these interviews with the psychiatrist in Keith in the podcast. Al Carlisle passed away, but Lauren Panchenko is talking to one of his research assistants and also his publisher who had worked a lot with him on the manuscript he was working on. He was working on a book about serial killers and he had interviewed a number of them, including Keith Jesperson. And one of the things that the guy said, he said, I'd like to like ask Rose, like why when she and Keith first split up, why she went because because the interviewer was saying, you know, Rose has all these kind of nasty, bad things to say about Leslie, Keith's father, that he was a real creep. He was sexually inappropriate. Uh, he definitely was a piece of work. And the guy said, yeah, but then why did Rose take her and the kids to live with Leslie after they split up? And Melissa says that did not happen. She said, I was old enough at that point to know, remember that very clearly. She was about 11 years old. She said, I learned later that it was our dad who basically said, we're getting a divorce, get out. But she said, what I remember is my mother packing us all up, packing us into the car with just a few days worth of clothes. And we went to her parents' house. So where did the story? The story was Keith had told this Al Carlisle, the psychiatrist. That, that he's like, well, I'm trying to make Rose look better. Right. Well, she complains about my father. But then as soon as we broke right. up, she goes running right to my father and she's living with him, right. you know, right. and it wasn't true. So then the guy says, oh, maybe a lot of things Keith told Al weren't really Ooh. true. Uh, you know, the podcast, I think the first 
five or so episodes are good. Then the rest of it is kind of her yeah, have dealing with it. Yeah. Uh, she apparently had written a book a number of years ago that sounds quite different. I don't know if her life story has changed. I read reviews of it on Goodreads where people said in that book, which was published in 2009, she talks less about her father. She may have known less about what he did. Mm-hmm. And she talks about marrying a man who was a Mormon and converting to the Mormon church. And there's a lot of her spiritual awakening and she talks a lot about dr phil she's been on the dr phil show Mm -hmm. none of that was mentioned in this this podcast which i believe was done in 2018 so i don't know if her own views have changed there's even one point where she's she meets up with don the son of julie winningham who's the last victim that goes i think on too long it's like two episodes worth uh where they visit the site where his mother was dumped and And he's telling her she's gotta believe him yeah it was good for her and for this guy to meet but she seems like she's not really a believer now. But it also could be, you know, she did the podcast with a, a journalist or producer or whatever, yeah, right? Sure. So it yeah. could be editorial decisions like on right. the podcast. I think if she were still devout, she, it would cut, she yeah, would mention it. Yeah. But, but a lot of the stuff that was in the book on the podcast, it may be, well, we're going to take a different you know, you can take any story. Right, and, right. Yeah, so, I mean, it does bring home how much of a trauma yeah. these people, these perpetrators commit on family, not just the the victims' families, but their own families. Yes. But just his, his stupid mind games, he manipulated her for years. She was going out with his boyfriend and she was pregnant when she learned, she was only about 15, when she learned of his crimes and everything. And when he was first arrested, she got an abortion. She made the mistake of letting him know about mm. that. He later told her that she was a killer just like him because she had had an yeah. abortion. There are still things she said that week before this particular interview on the podcast, she was in a new house with her boyfriend in Ohio, was painting it and was thinking about how her father always painted and was very meticulous about painting all the homes they lived in. Mm. And then also how he talked about how he washed down and painted the house where he killed Tanya Bennett to cover up his the blood spatter and she now is convinced that that was that spatter yeah. pattern she saw on the ceiling was he had cleaned down the walls but had the yeah. ceiling and hadn't painted yet and that she's convinced that yeah. was he's Thanks. still incarcerated in the oregon state penitentiary right there i think it could have been case files or somebody who did a podcast on the two falsely convicted yeah. people because yeah. i know i've heard that and i heard the daughter's podcast i've heard about him but i'm but you putting it all together yeah. and, think- and catching killers does episode three on on poor laverne and John Sapnowski, <laughs> and then that. does episode four on, well, who really was the killer? Right. And two issues, you guys know, because you hear me go on about enough and our listeners too. You know, I always get annoyed when I'm watching true crime or listening to podcasts. People don't recognize that there are many ways to control people. Right, right. And that there are red flags. And not that everybody who does that turns out to be a serial right. killer. But it's not like it's this finely cut thing where there's us and then there's these monsters who do this. Right. And I think one of the big failings is people not recognizing things like you don't need to be physically violent yeah. to end up committing a horrible act of physical violence or a many horrible acts of physical violence. And also the control things that are often blamed on the women yeah. that people still don't recognize. It's the controlling guy who's the problem. And then the guys get away with the shit. Yeah, yeah. And also it really, and you mentioned it and we've talked about it earlier today. And it's something that I've noticed more and more. And it's really beginning to bug me is on podcasts and true crime, crime shows and in some books I read where the person's obviously a duplicitous, manipulative, right, right. criminal killer, whatever. And yet 
they take things that he says at face value right, right. that make them a reason why he turned out you know like right. well he was abused so badly right. so i think that's one thing he... is people are desperate for reasons right, instead right. of understanding but the other thing is that i think that there's just not it's in a lot of cases just not a lot of critical thinking going yeah, on yeah. where oh maybe the wife and these guys always find ways to blame like uh, like i was thinking that with Camila side there's another podcast i'm listening to that they always find ways because what they've done is horrible to blame oh my wife did it or she right, made me right. blah 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 i was just like with the golden state killer well that woman in college rejected Bonnie. him and right so yeah it's like fuck it's you like it's not you why know? and one of the things that keith jesperson did is he used the fact that he in his mind the way he defined it did never abused his wife his wife rose right. and his kids it, that made him this great guy right you know i was a great dad you know and he wasn't a great dad i mean for one thing he was hardly ever there as rose said when he was there i mean let's face it it sounds like he at least three times actually tried to kill his baby daughter and his wife because <laughs> oh, he probably like once as often happens with these narcissists once a baby is born it's like oh it's not all about me anymore you right. know and do you see that his own duplicity and how he blames his victims in his own words and then and then yet you still see all these sources that kind of take his word for how his childhood and, right. and played out I and, I, and i think it does sound like there was some real issues with his father but i think it probably wasn't nearly as right. bad or, or nearly as sort of targeting keith as as he claims it was right. you know it, it wasn't ex- quite as he and you know, also i'm it. sure an issue too that somebody could delve into is how law enforcement particular in different jurisdictions particularly when it comes to killing of random women who they see as quote-unquote prostitutes or whatever do not put a high priority on connecting the dots or finding out who did it and i've thought about this more since listening to particularly to laura richards talk about uh peter sutcliffe is that there are a lot of women impoverished women who you can say, or the police, or whoever can classify as prostitutes, but who, because of their life circumstances, that's a way to make money to feed the kids, yeah, right, or right. to do whatever. Exactly. And and if they do that because there's a market for it because of men, that doesn't make them a prostitute or a sex worker or anything else. It makes them a woman who has to find some way to feed her right, family. Right because there are not the social structures in right, place. Right. And I know this is an obvious thing to say, but then they're, somehow their death or their murder is less important. Yeah. Or drug users. Oh, yeah. she was- Even if that is their way of life or anything. Right. Yeah, yeah a couple of his victims were kind of said, oh, she, she must have OD'd. Wow. Angela's surprise, they didn't actually hadn't found her body until Keith Jesperson said, I killed her, yeah. her, this woman and this is where you're, you can yeah. find her body. And they found the body, you know. But so, you also figure a guy like that, he probably didn't kill the 160 he claimed no, to. No, no. He probably killed a lot more than eight because it seems like it came pretty easy. Yeah, or, or it could be that he really did have this. He was caught. Yeah. You know, he, he started killing in this five-year period and then he was caught because he killed someone. The first per time he killed someone who he knew who could be tied to him, he right, got caught. Right. He was not criminally sophisticated as, right. as Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. Many of them are not. That was, well, that was really good. I enjoyed oh, thank you. that. Thank you. From the land, the land you live in of the Northwest, the yeah. serial killer capital of the United States. I know. There's so many. There. But now we have our recommendation. Yes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Becky and I, and you watched this too when I was watching it today. But yes, I, so yes, you can yes. probably wait. I watched in. some of it. Yeah. Saw, yeah, you saw some of it. Are doing a joint NNW on Dead Asleep, a Hulu documentary about a young man who killed his roommate, and the defense was that he was sleepwalking. I have lots to discuss about I this. Have, I have a lot to discuss as well. I bet um, you do. Yeah, as always. I could have a lot to discuss about like a dust ball on the rug. No, we, no, yeah. no. Okay. They had reenactments. I would say I liked what they did. They did not have reenactments, but they had animated, you know, like an animated- little dollhouse. And I don't want to call them claymation figures, but animated figures. And I find that much more effective than a reenactment. Showing yeah, more yeah, what happened yeah. than showing exactly. Like, obviously, somebody who's an artist or something did it, but it did make the poor girl who was the victim. No, made her look kind of hefty. She did not look like she had a huge butt. I know. Photos. Of her. I thought that too. I thought, well, the poor girl. She. Do you have anything else to say about that? Um, I'm going to take off half a point for well, a reenactment. It's not because of that. I liked that part. I don't enjoy when they put that vintage film in there, like when he's talking about the meat, I would have liked it if they actually showed someone cutting the meat off the jawbone and it didn't look like that. Well, somebody cleaving. Okay, so I'm taking off half a point. I have that with more points taken away in other sections. And that brings us to narrative cliches. And one thing I'm adding to narrative cliches uh, when we do true crime. Okay. Uh, Because it's become Uh a narrative cliche. I like things like the B-roll stuff has become one is because it's happening more and more the freneticism and the need to show movie clips and random film that don't have anything to do with okay. the story. And I think it's what you were talking about with the meat. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like, do we really need the clips of some like 1940s or 1950s jury? They have actual human jurors on this case. Just show the people. Do they think our attention spans are so short? That we exactly. can't watch something for 30 seconds or one minute without this frenetic film being shown. And also showing a lot of stuff that can be misleading, like a home video when Randy, yes. the killer's mother, is talking about her husband drunkenly beating her and slamming mm-hmm. the door and stuff. And they're showing a home video where the father's face is blurred out. And you know it's not that because nobody's going to be there filming this. It was but yeah, it, it's a home video and you hear somebody say, ouch, like little kid. But it's misleading videos of people sleepwalking, supposedly with no context, that can help bolster inadvertently or maybe vertently bolster some stupid point they're trying to make. But you don't know what like these sleepwalking videos. It's out of context. It's distracting. I was going to put this in storytelling, but it's become so much of a cliche. And so I'm taking off a point for narrative cliche. Oh, I don't have anything taken off for that. Probably similar things, but, and, and that might be in storytelling too, but I didn't have anything off for narrative cliche. So okay. racial gender obtuseness. I'm kind of adding to this too sexual. Oh, geez. Now you're adding all sorts of things to our 10. This rating system we've had for several years. So some of this can evolve. And I'm adding sexual and criminal obtuseness because it's another thing we're seeing often and often that's annoying me. And a lot of it is what the interviewees in a documentary say, but it's the people making the documentary who are choosing what to use in it. You know, unless it's countered or given context, it's the fault of the documentary. One big thing 
to me is lack of understanding about quote unquote sexual motive that something has to be blatant sexual for it to um, be a sexual motive, which is part of the problem with this documentary. And I'll talk about it more later, but I see that a lot in other ones too, that there's no depth to that. There's a lot of, well, there was nothing sexual between them without getting someone on board to explain further how there could have been a sexual motive. This carried over to the, the jury. At least one juror said, didn't think him being naked in the closet was a big deal, but it was a big deal to Brooke, the victim. And this happened the night before where she was angry and got a friend to come over and bring her to his house for the night because of it. the bathroom issue. Same thing. The, the fact that the young women and the guy could share the bathroom without being a problem. And the to me, that would have some effect on the guy. So it doesn't have to be this blatant sexual thing. And also one of the bigger gender or racial obtuseness things in it, the public defender and a reporter, both white, both say he's quote unquote, not the kind of defendant they typically see. Now, remember, this is South Florida and they don't elaborate on what the typical Mm. defendant is. It feels like it's a kind of a defense of him that he wouldn't brutally murder a young woman you know, or there's some questions why he would brutally murder a young woman because he's not, quote unquote, the type of defendant they usually see. If you Google images for West Palm Beach criminal defendants murder, guess what comes up? That's right. A bunch of photos of young black men. So I find this actually either intended or not intended dog whistle racism by the filmmaker who could have asked, what do you mean he's not like the defendants that you're used to? It has the implication that since he's a young, seemingly mild-mannered white guy, he's less likely to be a murderer and give sympathy to him. And obviously you have to find some motive for why he did it. And everybody's clueless. Well, what could the motive be? He's such a nice guy. We'll get into later why why the sleepwalking thing comes up, but that's minus point for me on that. Okay. The naked in the closet thing happened after she texted the guy. When he came over, that's when it happened. He was over there and he said, I didn't see him. But anyway, that's besides Right. But she also, and that even. I know he was annoying her. Because she's like, he's being so annoying. She texted her friend Kyle because Randy was bothering her so much. And she seemed like kind of a nice girl and everything. So my guess is he was bothering her quite a bit. And it seems to me from law enforcement to the jury, to everybody else, they should have realized this is partly a sexual thing and that, and there was obtuseness that nobody seemed to recognize that. Okay. I disagree with the, a lot of that. I don't think it was necessarily a sexual thing. And I don't think that that's, I thought that the prosecution jumped to that conclusion that he was a jilted, that he was upset because she rejected him when I didn't think that that was what well, happened. And I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. And I don't necessarily think him being naked in the closet was a sexual thing or, or that she that she was that upset about it or she I think she was upset because they were both drinking all day and he was being an idiot. I don't know if it was sexual though. But first of all, the guy Kyle said the naked in the in the closet thing bothered her a lot. One of my point I can't remember what category I have it under is that sexual motive doesn't have to be that he made a pass. And she rejected it or not, but he could have these feelings of whatever, and they're coming out in in different ways, and that could be classified as sexual. But I think they had way too much a rigid view of what that was. Can I can I just mm-hmm. get you just having watched it a little while you were 
over going over Mo. It struck me too that you could, yeah, like the prosecution was kind of define it into narrow terms. Like, as you said, like, right. like it, it had to be sexual, meaning that he would like overtly proposition her and she'd reject him. I, and I was thinking even like with what Becky was saying, it seems to me that in some ways he was sort of obsessed with her. It didn't have to, it doesn't necessarily even have to have been a sexual obsession. There are ways that someone can be kind of psychologically obsessed with someone that doesn't necessarily right. have I a agree with predominantly that. sexual component. I, I Maybe agree. just because they're very lonely. At least their talking head was a black woman. Yes. yes professional. Good. Yes. Dr. Bruce. Visuals? I didn't take anything off. No, of I didn't either. There's lots of social media, but they have both photos and text and post to people. And I like them using the text. I, I'm going to talk about that more later, though. Missing pieces? Yes. What do you have? I have many. So Me too. I'll, I'll try you to go take. first. Okay. And I'll say up front, I'm taking away a point. Yes. You can probably take away more. But first, a logistical thing. There's a question at the end of whether he actually had a conversation with Brooke about a t-shirt he wanted to give her for her boyfriend. Exactly. Since she didn't know about the t-shirt until that conversation, and there's a question as to whether that conversation really took place, if it was with her things, or if she had it, or if it was on the floor covered with blood, the conversation happened. If it was still in his dresser drawer, the conversation didn't happen. I don't know if that question was ever asked. If it was, nobody on the documentary mentioned it. I had the same thing. Right, because part of the defense thing is if he was asleep long enough to be sleepwalking, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. I'd like to know more about the credibility of the quote-unquote forensic sleep expert who they were basing a lot of their knowledge about sleepwalking on. They talk about something called the Bancalo criteria. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It was devised by a guy and it has all these criteria for sleepwalking murder. Was it devised by him studying people who claimed sleepwalking when they were charged with murder? Because a lot of it could be non-sleepwalking people charged with murder claiming sleepwalking. So it'd be a circular argument. If these are criteria of people who quote unquote kill when they're sleepwalking, and now you're using them to measure whether somebody could have killed while they're sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'd like to know is how that was devised. If it's just devised by studying people who claimed they killed somebody when they're sleepwalking. And a lot of the things are, it's somebody who was known to them. They didn't clean it up. Well, lots of times if you kill somebody in a rage or whatever, and then you're like, oh shit, what did I do? You're, you may not. I would have liked to know more about how really scientifically accurate that was. The whole thing about there being no motive Yet it doesn't connect the dots between the psychiatrist who talks, Dr. Bruce, who talks about all the abandonment issues, in his mm-hmm. home, including his father rejecting him, his rudderlessness, the fact that he was made fun of as a kid, his people-pleasing desperation, his drug and alcohol issues, and how living with two very nice, very attractive young women may have fueled some of his rage. Well, the one psychiatrist, Dr. Bruce, was good at touching on some of the issues. The show never connects the dots. They just allow the no motive thing to hang there without saying this guy could have had psychological issues that could have fueled a rage like this. You know, it's like either he was fine and slept walk or like there's no motive. Well, they look into a lot of psychological stuff and do a decent job of explaining some of it. They never elaborate on how a sexual motive doesn't have to be a guy overtly making a pass at a girl and her rejecting it. It could be something like him feeling inadequate sexually or rejected sexually. And those girls really have nothing to do with it, but he's, you know, objectifying them in that way. There's no discussion about why someone would say they don't remember 
a crime like that. They just take it at face value, the cops and everybody else that he didn't remember. He doesn't come right out at the beginning and say he doesn't remember. He says when they ask him what happened, he's like, I don't know. And he's obviously in shock and very upset. And then later, when the cops are interviewing and he's saying, is she okay? Well, he already told them he killed her and everything. So obviously that was, or possibly, that he's had time to think about it. And now he's trying to dial things back a little and figure, how am I going to save my ass? At the beginning, like I said, when they say what happened, he doesn't say, I don't remember what happens. He just keeps saying, I don't know, I don't know, which could mean anything. They imply there have been cases where people have claimed that they murdered while sleepwalking and were even acquitted, that that means it could have happened with him too. To me, whether those people were acquitted or not, I'd like to know more about the psychological aspects of doing something like this while you're sleepwalking. They never tie in whether someone can commit a murder. Well, they say somebody can do violent things or be hurt or undergo pain while sleepwalking. They never say, okay, somebody who has absolutely no violent feelings or feelings of rage or whatever can actually stab you know, a young woman 25 times and drag her all over the house and everything while sleepwalking. It's just this weird thing that's going to happen in your head. I would think that there would have to be other things going on in your, in your head and they never make that connection. So I'm taking away a point. Okay. I agree with some of that, although we, I don't have that as part of missing pieces, but I'm taking away a point because I realized that they do have a disclaimer at the end that the girl's family declined to speak to the to the filmmaker. And by the way, the filmmaker is Sky Borgman, who did In Plain family, Sight, in abducted plain In Plain Sight. sight. Anyways, so that was the filmmaker. They had a disclaimer at the end that their family, you know, declined to talk to them. But I still wanted to know more about the f- friendship. We heard a lot about him. I wanted to know more about the relationship between the girls and him and what their perception, especially the sister, she she did testify for the defense, but I just wanted to know more about that. And also I felt like with the deluge, they said they lived on social media. I wanted to see more stuff about them and their relationship and more texts and more posts and stuff like that, that would give me a better idea of the whole situation. So yes. I'm taking a point off. And I was going to talk about that in repetition because if they're, they're living on social yeah, media, why do they keep showing the same stuff? Yes, but, exactly. But also, it's never as simple as these three people are all living together and they all get along great and everything's hunky-dory and they're like sisters to him. There's these two really beautiful young women and this guy who obviously from other things other people have said has you know feelings of insecurity and all this. He's obviously going to have feelings that are more, much more complicated than I'm living with my two good buddies who are sisters here. Exactly. Um, storytelling that leads us to. Did we do inaccuracy and anachronism? Oh, oh no, we didn't. I didn't take anything off. I'm not either. Storytelling, I found too many leaps of logic, like the defense lawyer says late in the thing that either you believe he was sleepwalking and there was absolutely no motive or you believe it was a premeditated mm, i had a problem with that too and and to me no there's a gray area and better storytelling would have made that more clear well like i said they're good at explaining a lot of psychological things dr bruce the psychiatrist the woman who talks about his rejection issues and other things but they don't connect the dots between what she's saying and what he did or how that could have led to certain feelings that would have led him to do what he did the psychiatrist who first interviewed him when he was arrested that the defense hired 
who they have testifying. Uh, and I looked him up and apparently he's a professor and he's written books and stuff, but he couldn't find quote unquote any trauma or any reason he would do something like, but when you, they get into his life, there's plenty of things. And then the he kind of throws out there, geez, do you think it could have been sleepwalking? And then they go into the whole thing about how, yes, he did sleepwalk and stuff. And I think the storytelling in this guy apparently obviously wasn't available or they would have had him on the show besides just his testimony. But it's like, what did he mean by there was no trauma? Like there was no reason, quote unquote, this kid would do that. When I know. It went from zero to 60 on the sleepwalking. I would have liked to have known more about, you know, the mom and the sister talk about him sleepwalking as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I sympathize with the fact the mother didn't have the money or whatever to get to bring him to specialists and stuff. I would have liked to know if he was sleepwalking when he was living with Brooke and Jordan. I know. They didn't do a good job of structuring it in a way it reminded me a little of that billy milligan documentary where it's like oh this person's saying this thing this person's saying that thing but there's no structure or connection to what does this mean about randy there's that freneticism that we talked about earlier that i think is also bad storytelling you know the constant film clips of shit yeah nothing to do I feel like maybe it should have been like two episodes or something because this whole constant no motive thing, there was obviously a motive, even if he was possibly sleepwalking, there was something that led him to do this. Yes, exactly. Um, So I'm taking half a point off from storytelling. Similar to you, I thought it could have been longer and they, in some ways I thought the story was told fairly well, where kind of what happened was explained and kind of the way she had the 911 call at the beginning. And then at the end, when you're listening to it at the end, you're, you have a different understanding of what's going on. I'm just taking half a point off. I felt like it could have been more cohesive. So repetition, I'm taking away half a point because as you said, they live on social media and yet we see like that film of him drinking the beer. Oh, it's three o'clock. And now I finally, I'm I know and stuff like that. I'm taking away a point. They the same pictures, the same videos over and over. It's like, come on, there's got to be more. The other thing that doesn't fit anywhere, but I thought was kind of weird is they had pictures and videos of the dad where he wasn't blurred out. Yes. And then in other ones, he was, I know and maybe it was because the source where they got him. I couldn't figure that out. I, yeah, I couldn't figure that out either. Uh, beating uh, the drum. I'm not taking I'm taking away a point because Ooh. the fact that he was mild-mannered, kind, fun, gentle, all that stuff is talked about constantly. Well, it downplaying possible predatory and other behavior. I guess so. Although my reason for not taking it off is I didn't feel like they were beating me over the head with any one theory. It kind of just gave you the the scenario and it didn't say one way or the other Uh, to me it didn't try to make you think one way or the other and i didn't think it tried to make me feel one way or another necessarily but i think the drum and maybe it's because of the racial thing um just got into my head and bugged me but i felt the drum was beaten that this kind of guy doesn't do this kind of thing the way i took it was that it's a surprise because he's mainly because of his, li- he was little too. And the, just kind of that it would be, a, it wouldn't, even if he was black and little probably would have been like, well, oh, you just wouldn't expect that. But I didn't feel like she was like, they were trying to advocate one way or the other that, oh, he obviously did this while he was sleepwalking or no, he didn't. And I'm glad that they had Dr. Bruce on to say it could have been 
right. you know, one of three things. Um, and so I gave it a four and a half. I, I gave it watched, a seven. Which is not to say for me not to watch it. Part of it is I think I've just been so frustrated lately by the inability of true crime stuff to recognize things that aren't just overt violence and overt sexual behavior that colored my viewing of this because I felt like there's nothing to me that would say from what I watched on it, this guy wouldn't do that. He was, I, I feel like in Dr. Bruce's three choices, the last one where he was in a, yeah. a rage and just did it. I kind of agree with her last thing. My theory of it, I don't think he was sleepwalking, but I do think that he was up for days. Um, he was drinking constantly. If he did something like he might've blacked it out just because it's something you, it is just shock. I mean, a lot of people are like, Oh, he obviously couldn't have done it because he was so remorseful. You would be remorseful, but you still did it. Right. And you'd still be in shock because you can't believe you did something like right. that. And I think that he did say he was blackout drunk a lot and he wasn't claiming he was them, but he had been drinking and they didn't elaborate on his drug use, but he did say he was using yes. drugs. I don't know what drug showed him smoking a joint, but I'm just saying he could have easily right. done it. And he did admit to doing it. I don't think he necessarily blacked out. I mean, but I think what happened is it was the kind of thing where it was just happening and he didn't really want to dwell on what happened. And then he was given an out pretty quickly yeah. by others. He was rudderless. His life had been fairly yeah. miserable. He was probably more depressed than what he lets on on the show because it's, he looks yeah. like somebody who guards his feelings. But his father had killed his father's girlfriend and then killed himself. And Randy had yep. to clean the apartment up. And Brooke, one of these people who I'm sure made his life pleasant was leaving yes exactly. to go live with a boyfriend in buffalo new york and he was probably upset about that and he slept with a fucking giant serrated hunting knife next to his bed and i'm not saying that means he was planning on killing somebody with it but it, i think it also normalizes that kind of violence for people when they're that used to having weapons around but it's yeah and I but think it's, it was that's a, not unusual, though. Right. I think it was a. I think he had a lot of rage, probably stemming back years and years and years. Despite the fact his mother seemed like a nice, loving person, and his sister was, he had a miserable childhood where they were often with other people because his mom had to work so much, and his father rejected him, and he mm -hmm. was made fun of because he liked flowers and stuff. Aww, and all sorts of things that I'm sure we don't even know. And these two very nice, very attractive young women that took him in, but he was their pal and they were together having all this fun. And I can't imagine he didn't have, even if he never said a word to any about it, didn't have some kind of feelings about them because he was a young man living with two beautiful women. And like that whole thing about the bathroom photo where the defense is trying to show, look at it. He treats them like sisters. Here she is on the toilet and he's shaving and blah, blah, blah. Maybe the girls were like, hey, this is fun. But my guess is a young man that age with two young women who will be in the bathroom when he's in the bathroom and stuff, it's fueling thoughts he might have, whether they're sexual, whether they're resentful, whatever they are, he's going to have feelings that go beyond, oh, this is just normal dealing with my sisters. I, we grew up in a house without a lot of bathrooms 
and um, a lot of kids. And I did not share a bathroom with any either of my brothers no. in their life. So no way. he may not even be able to explain his feelings, but it all built up and she was going and he had a hunting knife by his bed. And one reason I think that he is he has very specific memories, both before and after but again, he was given the out of night. He wasn't saying he didn't remember it until other yeah. people let him say that. He just said, I don't know what happened. I could drop a carton of eggs in the kitchen and be looking at it on the floor and know I dropped the carton of eggs and remember dropping it like it all happened in slow motion. But I can still say, see, saying to somebody, you know, I dropped that friggin' carton of eggs. I don't know what happened. I just dropped it. You know, if you watch the beginning and watch the 911 calls and the cops talking to him, he didn't say all of a sudden I had blood on my hands and she was dead. He just goes, yeah. I don't know. And I agree with that. I'm not saying that you can't do stuff when you're sleepwalking because right. one doctor did kind of an explanation where he said it was a primal, you know, you're when you're sleepwalking, you're in that. And oh, also oh, when people are sleepwalking, it is extremely creepy. I've seen like once I saw Nikki sleepwalking when <clears> she was little, I made her go back to bed, but that was, she was only like five, but like, otherwise, like the people that show on video were creeping me out. I, it's, I it's creepy, it creepy to see somebody about the guy saying it's a primal thing, what I would have liked to have known was, yes, I understand it's the primal part of your brain, but it's one thing to sleepwalk over to the window and try to open it or to sleepwalk to the kitchen to get a drink of water. It's another thing to stab somebody 25 times and drag them around the I house. Know. Would the primal part of your brain do that if you had no issues that would make exactly right right. well he kind of said that you're do wake up and punch somebody when they wouldn't normally do that or they do it in their sleep they don't right because you're trying to defend yourself you know this guy took a but but i don't think that what he was doing i don't think that that would and that's like i said i think we generally feel the same way about it And, and like i said i'm not saying oh it's bullshit the sleepwalking is bullshit but i do not believe he was in a sound sleep and did what he did. I just don't. No, I don't. I don't. In the timeline. I also don't agree that it was premeditated murder. No, I, I, I wouldn't put it in that. No, category I wouldn't either. either. And we only have his account for what happened in that house before he stabbed her. And while I know the defense says, you know, that conversation may not have even happened. Nobody's saying who knows what the conversation was. Who knows if they had an argument? I guess that's it. Oh, I did notice the mother's dog was super fat. Yeah, that's the first thing I noticed because they show him and she said, good boy. For the kid and the dog. Yeah. And she was quite skinny, if I remember. I think a few episodes would have elaborated more on, especially what went on in that house. I know. Too often what we're seeing are some documentaries and podcasts that go on too long in one case. And then there are others like this possibly where they really did need more than one episode. Right. And I know it's hard for them to know what was, and I'm not saying what necessarily even went on that morning, but just went on in general. And I know it's hard when her sister didn't want to talk about it. And the sister, sister, the third Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just because somebody testifies to the defense and stuff doesn't mean they don't have mixed feelings. Well, that. also, like you said, he was probably extremely introverted. If he felt yeah. one way or another, I'm sure yeah. he kept it Except to himself. One, but we also know how being nice to people can be misinterpreted. Well, they had this whole narrative too. Oh, he's our buddy. He's our right. like a brother. We're like sisters and right. brother and blah, blah, blah. And he just, of course, he went along with it because he, 
I mean, well, I'm not saying that he didn't feel that well, way. I think they made it clear you're like a brother to us right. and that's so he's not gonna rock the boat his mother made you know? it very clear that he was a people pleaser going mm-hmm. way back you know that he behaved the way people wanted him to behave because he wanted them to feel good and like him but if he was not affected by her sitting there on the toilet while he was shaving he is the only heterosexual young man in the world who wouldn't be affected by something know, like that. I know. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So next episode is your turn. And I know you have something really good coming up. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. then Liz, for those of you, because some of the her episodes, particularly her Kyron Horman one, are our most popular oh. ever. We'll be back <laughs> in the summer, yes, right? Yes. Yeah. And I know yes. I say this like every episode, but I, we do have photos from crime scenes from some of your episodes yeah. some of mine in new hampshire yeah. and becky i have some of some of yours and i am going to do a new year's newsletter Ooh. for our patreon okay oh wow are you laughing yeah, that's funny. <laughs> i don't know because you think i'm not gonna do it i will it's my new year's resolution <laughs> okay yeah. we do appreciate the people who support yes us. very much thank you everybody yeah and this will be our first episode of 2022 yes happy new year everybody happy Happy new New year Year. hopefully 2022 will be even more awesome than 2021 (laughs) and thanks for listening thank you everybody i just said no and then i got interrupted again so oh oh, she's getting all right